Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. All right, we're continuing uh, with uh, 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to do a reading from both chapter 1 and 2. But I've entitled this uh, Fake News versus Good News. And we live in an age in which the various forms of mass media, television, radio, the internet, Facebook, Twitter, as I sat down to name all these things, I realized I actually don't know all the things that, that people use, but uh, that they're shaping our world. And so we have fake news. We have Russians meddling in our social media. We have the press demonized as the enemy. And now the murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. And there's no question that our world is shaped by words and those words can be deadly. And this deployment of language is called, you know, it's, uh, Paul is going to use the phrase, the debaters or the, uh, the rhetoricians of the age. I believe ours is an age of rhetoric. And rhetoric, as Paul is using it here in Corinthians, does not simply mean stylistic devices, though that's a use of the term. Rhetoric is not harmless, but uses language with the aim of uh, manipulating the appearance of reality. It was even originally connected sometimes to torture. So it's not simply that some deploy rhetoric, though, as Paul describes it, and others, you know, tell the truth. But in Paul's description, human beings, this age, he calls it, are caught up in the house of human language, we might say. He's going to three, use three linguistic terms, rhetoric, law, and philosophy, each of which would constitute or are part of a constitution of our reality. And he's characterizing then this age as having a human speech problem. And maybe at this time in our own history, this is accentuated. But Paul says that the age from his time until now, that is this present age, is characterized by a failure of language. Now certainly in his preaching, and this is Dale read this for the communion, Paul has not used manipulative language. He's not browbeat people. He's not, you know, used rhetoric. It's not in, his preaching is not an entertainment. But his logos of the cross exposes this form of speech as a kind of nullity. He's going to use the language. It's a not, it's a nothing. And this nullity is tied to a dying age. And God's being then is in communicating. This is kind of my summary here. So let me state it if, if I lose you. That God's being is in communicating and communion. And the likeness we share with him is in communication and communion. So that discommunion is a failed communication. So let's read, let me read from, uh, first of all, three verses from chapter 1. And I'm going to take that and contrast it with uh, two verses from chapter 2. 
So chapter 1, 19 to 21. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And then let's skip over to chapter 2, verse 12 to 14. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know things Know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual words and with spiritual thoughts. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are, they are spiritually appraised. In pitting the foolishness of preaching against the world's talk and the world's talkers, you know, the philosophers, the word there for wisdom is Sophia. It could be philosophers, it could be the wise, but I think Paul is specifically talking about the sophists, the scribes, the rhetoricians, Paul's depicting an apocalyptic disruption of one world. As a new world unfolds, he's depicting this in terms of language. And the primary difference between the age that is passing and the age which is being inaugurated is found in the forms of speech deployed by the respective ages. And so Paul's tripartite linguistic characterization characterization, the three parts here, of this passing age, I believe he's giving us the universal possibility for being human in terms of language. So number one, rhetoric. Well, what is rhetoric? You know, at a basic level, rhetoric could just be, well, that's the way we use language. But Paul means the rhetoricians, the debaters. And this covers every form of manipulative fictional, persuasive speech, speech which the point is in its primary focus is its effect. It's sometimes referred to as empty speech because the point of it is not the truth, but to compel people, to shape people to do something. And so this is the speech of advertising. This is the speech of propaganda. This is the speech designed by the state or by the elite to persuade the masses. It is coercive speech. It's luring speech. So it's not concerned with the truth, but with the effect of the speech. The word actually derives from the word arrow, I say or I speak, and pertains to the I, the ego, or the world of appearances. And so, as we know, in Paul's explanation in Romans 7, the ego is connected with human desire. And the eye is the spectral object of desire. 
which is connected with alienation, with loss of being, that characterize this subject. So let me give you a definition of rhetoric. Rhetoric, we might say, is concerned with the pursuit of being through its image or representation. It is the simulacrum of the self in the ego, the ego being that which is unreal. The next category that Paul uses is scribes. And of course, the scribes are the lawyers. They're the experts in the Jewish law. And they're concerned with meaning as it exists in this written form. So rhetoric is primarily concerned with the spoken word. And scribes work with words originally set in stone. So one can obey, disobey, interpret. You can apply the law. But the law is not like rhetoric. It's not concerned with the effect, but it's simply concerned with the instantiation of the law. That is doing it. Rhetoric is indirect, pushing and pulling, but law is direct. Do this, do not do this. And the law, unlike rhetoric, is not fluid. It's not dynamic, it's immovable. It's not living, right? Though the law is meant to be applied, embodied, in Paul's explanation, the law is not instantiated. That is, it's not written on the human heart. And the way he describes this, in fact, in our orientation is that he describes the law of sin and death as the law that is, in fact, instantiated in our lives. But maybe even to say that, it doesn't get at the peculiar elusiveness of attempting to be the originators. And of course, that's our problem in sin, that we would be the originators of the law. We would be the scribes. We would inscribe ourselves in the law. The law is that symbolic order which we would make our own, fallen as we are. We would be our own lawgivers, you know, as Bonhoeffer says, we would be the arbiters of our own ethics. Now we might imagine, oh, well that would mean we're completely free. But the exact opposite is the case. In inscribing ourselves within the law, in this symbolic order, it is it has a punishing effect. In fact, the law becomes a punishing presence in our lives. We suffer. Who's causing us to suffer? Not God, right? Because this isn't God's law. It's our own law. So who is enforcing this law? Well, we are. There is the sense that we suffer and sacrifice before this law to ensure this is its reality. This is its presence in our lives. And so the condemnation, the guilt, the shame, that's not God's doing, right? That's our doing. We are the originators of this law of sin and death, which is killing us. We are leveraging this law and exacting death in our body. That's why Paul calls it this body of death. So it has not been foisted upon us from God, from above, or from below, but it comes from within. We're sick. I mean, that's what is being described. And we're sick in our orientation to the law because of the law that we have created. So it's not just the scribes who have perfected inscribing the law. Where do they inscribe it in Jesus' explanation? He said, you write it on tombstones. You yourselves are whitewashed tombs. You yourselves make memorials 
to the dead, the dead prophets. But maybe we all compulsively chisel away at our own headstone. The third word is the word Sophia or sophist wisdom, philosophy. You know, sophistry is the concern of philosophers. And they are the ones who could presume to find the truth in language per se. So it's premised on the understanding, philosophy is premised on the understanding that the power of thought, the power of human thought, is the highest worth that we have. And the realm of language is thought to be life-giving and not subject to death, literally in Platonic and Aristotelian thought, in Greek thought, clear on through. And I think that's who, you know, the sophists are, are Greek philosophers. And they connect this capacity of language with the soul, the psyche, human thought. And Plato, you know, pictures the soul as pre-existing birth. It's like a, a little piece of divinity. It survives death. It's not, it's not bound to the body. And so in this understanding, language literally imparts the likeness of God. Remember the lie in Genesis? You won't die. Take up this knowledge, this special knowledge. The philosophy in the day of Paul literally is duplicating the lie of Genesis, denying the reality of death. And so in this sense, philosophy, and maybe philosophy, you know, this is the way I think philosophy, especially Greek philosophy, is a summation of Greek religion. It's a summation of, of the human condition. It articulates the form in which death is taken up. Now that doesn't sound right, but think of the lie in Genesis denied the death and you take it up, right? You won't die. Oh, believe that lie and what happens? You die. And so death denied is to take death into the self. This is not simply due to an arbitrary law impl implemented by God. It's the natural outworking of turning away. You know, that's the picture in Genesis. They turn away from life, the tree of life, being connected to God, and they turn to knowledge. They presume that in God's absence that they can have life on their own and be like God. And what happens, I think, in God's absence is there's a tripartite, there's a Trinitarian emptiness. I think that Paul is describing in these three categories. The three deployments of language constitute the world made for and by humans. This is our world in which we would push God out. So this is not the house or world of God or the house that he's built, but it's the, the, what, the world that we have built. It describes not only the house of language for corporate people, but I believe it describes the dynamic of language in the consummation, and Paul uses this language here in Corinthians, of the natural man. The psychikos is actually the word he used, he's using. The psychikos human. He says in 2.14, natural man does not accept the things of God, the things of the Spirit of God. He cannot. He cannot comprehend. And the question is, why not? This soulish human is constituted 
apart from the presence of God and thus contains within himself. You know, this is literally there in Plato. But it's literally there in many people's conception today, even in the church. Oh, that we are innately immortal. That we are naturally eternal. Paul describes this absolute something, this psychicos soul, as a nullity three times over. He says that the ego or the I is subject to dissolution. I have been crucified with Christ. The law of the mind or the punishing effects, you know, the katakrina is the Greek word here, of the punishing presence of ourselves to ourselves, it's suspended in the death of Christ. And that's the, the, the word that Paul uses here, that it's rendered inactive due to the fact that, you know, just as the orientation to the law serves to displace God, being joined to Christ, it undoes this punishing orientation. It undoes the punishing effect of the law. So the lie of philosophy, death taken as life, is dissolved in Christ. So what I've, I've just done, I've done the three parts of language, and this explains why Paul in 1 Corinthians maintains that these things which are philosophy, wisdom, rhetoric, the scribes, these things that we imagine are absolute are exposed as nullities. He says they're nothing. That that which would be counted as nothing, the cross of Christ, the logos of Christ, nullifies. The logos of Christ, the, the cross, nullifies. The, the gospel that Paul has preached, this foolishness of what has been preached, undoes this, and it renders it so otherwise, it's inaccessible. It's unconscious. This natural psyche, you can't apprehend God. You can't even understand what you're doing. The original lie, you will not die, dismisses the reality that we face. In some manner, then, we've all entered into this unreality, characterized by this sort of false, empty language. Jews seeking signs. That is, they're seeking being. They're, the, the, the word here for signs, they're looking for a literal, a spectral idea. Something that they can see in order to gain being. Greeks seeking wisdom are seeking being through knowing. And they're simply, maybe they're just two ways of describing people who are attached to alternative, you know, uh, knowing uh, God on our own basis, the knowledge of good and evil. And this knowing itself is pictured, we've talked in Isaiah, it's pictured as a covenant with death. And so one emphasizes seeing, one emphasizes the mind, knowing, but they're both grounded in nothingness in this explanation. So the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. They're literally seeking optical impressions by which they might attain life. It's not the revelation of Christ they seek. And I think we need to distinguish revelation from this sign that they seek. Because the sign of, you know, the revelation of the cross undoes the thing that they are seeking. They want a visual disclosure confirming their knowledge. They don't want a revelation, you know, that's, this is what the cross is doing. It's overturning human language. 
And likewise, wisdom or philosophy. Man would know the being of all that is, or at least access being. And Paul maintains very strongly, the world cannot know God. It cannot, in verse 21, come to know God on this basis. And so it's not just that these mediums are inadequate, but they're a lie, right? They constitute a lie. They constitute a deception, a world of deception that we would inhabit. And so the nature of the original lie is a negotiation between life and death. You won't die, but you will be like God. You will have life within yourself. You will attain life through knowing, through language, through words. And these are three forms these words might take. Well, what would we know the knowledge of, you know, through the knowledge of good and evil? We would be like God. We would have life. We would be unchanging. And so we might say the object of this lie is to know myself, is to establish a God-likeness in the I or the ego. And the object of the lie is, uh, you know, this is the world of rhetoric. Ever talking, ever seeking, and never finding. So if we think of Paul's ego or I, not as an actually existing object. That is, this eye is subject to crucifixion. This eye is not a reality. It is that which eludes us. It fails to be grasped by speech. It is the idol. It's the same word, by the way. The tselem, the image, the eye, the ego. It represents deity, but it is ultimately unattainable. So rhetoric, ego-centered language, is empty language, empty words. Romans says, with their tongues they keep deceiving psalms, for not a word they speak can be trusted. Destruction is within them, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice flattery. There is pure rhetoric. If anyone considers himself religious, James says, yet does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. And his religion is worthless. Psalms says your tongue frames deceit. The tongue frames deceit and it results in violence. Their throats are open graves. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing. Paul is quoting a series of scriptures from the Old Testament. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. This rhetoric comes with a price. It's death-dealing. And we're seeing this death-dealing nature of rhetoric played out in the news on a daily basis. You love all the words that devour, O oh, deceitful tongue. The second part of this, you know, is the scribes. This is, we might say, the medium of sin, Paul says, that lie sin arose in conjunction with the law. Not that the law is the problem, but sin deceived me in regard to the law. The object of the lie, you know, is if that's the ego, the medium of the lie is the law. Just think here of the law of the knowledge of good and evil, the law that we would take unto ourselves. It's not simply language, but it is language taken as an end in itself. It is the presumption that man, through his knowing, as at Babel, can storm the heavens. 
that through his philosophy and wisdom, he can know God. Paul says you cannot know God on this basis. In the individual, it's the presumption that I have within myself the, the power to pronounce judgment. This is Paul's point here in the second half. It's a, a judgment maybe that we would pronounce on ourselves. It is conscience. This was our discussion. It's conscience, though, turned upon the self. It is a punishment. The sacrifice, the law, taken up within the self. You know, this is the king of, of Tyre. I am and there is no other. I would attain to being as expressed in this language. But Paul says at the end of this chapter that I do not judge any one. I do not even, he says in 1 Corinthians 4, 3, but to me it is a very small thing that I be examined to you or by any human court, and it is the legal language. In fact, I do not even examine myself. And then the third part of this, the philosophy, is that which is covered over. The sophia, the sophistry, denies death. Uh, it is human language that would, in fact, cover over, you know, it's metaphysics, it's uh, the, the Genesis 3 religion, you won't die. It's the Isaiah 28 religion, entering into a covenant with death. And so Paul says, where is the sophist? Where is the philosopher? Where is the scribe? Where is the rhetorician? God has nullified these things that are and replace them with the foolishness of preaching, with the logos of the cross. So Paul's preaching deploys a language which by way of contrast, he says in 2.4, is a demonstration of the spirit and of power. The, this word gave what rise to a new order of human being, and that's what we're reading about in chapter 2. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, characterized by the language of the world, but the spirit who is from God, characterized not by the knowing of the world, but that you may know the things God has freely given to us. We've entered into a knowledge, but a very different sort of knowing. The spirit of the world, the, the word here is the archon of the age, amounts to an absence of knowing. It's empty speech. It's an empty presence. There's no one there. And the Spirit then marks the presence of God. You know, there's this, the contrast, the Spirit of the world, it's empty. The Spirit of God marks the presence of God in speech founded on His presence. We don't need to conjure up His presence. We don't need to strive to produce it as in rhetoric, as in the scribes. And notice that in Paul's picture, it's no longer judging us. He who is spiritual, he says, appraises, and this is the legal term, all things, yet he himself is appraised uh, by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord? This is verse 15 and 16. 
that he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Here is the summation of his entire argument. The word translated uh, appraised, it means to investigate. It's an investigation before a trial. It's a, a judicial investigation before the, the hearing proper. But it is no longer we ourselves who are being investigated. We're no longer under this judging trial investigated by the word of man but through the word of God he says we appraise we investigate all things that we apprehend we know we understand we comprehend in and through the word which is Christ and so human knowing and language originally in the fall was aimed at being like God but it displaced God right it was going to be God on its own. And Paul describes our new relationship to language, to the world, as summed up in the fact we have the mind of Christ. And so likeness to God is achieved through Christ. Uh, that we who are found in his likeness experience death to sin, death to this punishing, you know, uh, presence we reverse our relationship to words we trade empty words for a fullness of speech we're able to keep our word in a very simple way but even more than that we have the capacity to walk as Jesus walked we have the mind of Christ we can enter in to an eternal dialogue that's what Paul is describing combining spiritual thoughts in 212 with spiritual words. Very interesting phrase. Here is an infinite depth of communion and communication. The communication of the Spirit through the Son is an opening to knowing God, knowing through Him that we may know all things, Paul says, freely given to us by God. And this communication as with any true communication is multi-directional you know maybe we could describe rhetoric philosophy the, the the law as a word from nowhere directed to no one there's no communion there it's a discommunion but communication in the spirit is a full communion with God other people all who share in the mind Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.